Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we examine the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and joining me today is Dr. Nicholas Harriman, a senior lecturer in anthropology at La Trobe University. We're going to talk about the Cocos Islands and the research that he's been doing there as an anthropologist and explore how those people have retained their culture and the ways in which they're doing that. Thank you for joining me, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. So if you could set a bit of context for me, uh, for those who haven't heard of the Cocos Islands, and I'm sure that would be a lot of people, where are they and what's a bit of their background? Tell me about the people living there and their demographics. So the Cocos Islands are situated in the northeast Indian Ocean, which means they're somewhere between Perth and Sri Lanka, about halfway, that would be close to the Cocos Islands. They're south of Java and Sumatra, not too far, less than a thousand kilometres south of those two islands. The Cocos Islands are basically two atolls. The collective title is the Cocos open bracket, Keeling, close bracket islands. That refers to these two atolls. One is the Keeling Island to the north, and then to the south, the Cocos Islands. Keeling Island is just one island, whereas the Cocos Islands are a ring of islands. Only two of them are inhabited. One's called West Island. There's an airport there, or small airport, or strip, I should say, and about 200 people, mostly from mainland Australia. On the other side of Lagoon is a place called Home Island. And on Home Island, there are about 400 or so Cocos Malays. So it's a very interesting question as to how they got there. The islands were uninhabited in 1826 when a European explorer decided that he would bring a retinue of slaves, a harem to <laughs> populate the island and be king over the islands. The next year, workers, and uh, another European by the name of Clunies Ross, took control of the whole venture. So Clunies Ross and his descendants ruled over the islands from 1827 right up to, well, officially 1984, it was finally all over. So really for more than 150 years, there was a kingdom, if you like, ruled by people who are, who we call white rajas, that is European families who have starred themselves on sort of oriental kings, if you like. So in a sense, it's one of Australia's oldest settlements in as much as it settled before Perth, before Melbourne for that matter, although it only became part of Australia formally in 1984 when the Cocos Malays were given a vote, do you want to become part of Australia or do you want to be separate? And they said, oh, we'll become part of Australia, thank you. And so in a plebiscite, they voted overwhelmingly to become part of Australia. And by doing that, not only did Australia gain a territory in the Indian Ocean, but we also gained our oldest Malay community. So it's really been a wonderful acquisition for Australia. So culturally-wise, these people would be very close to the Malay culture, but they've had time to very much develop their own distinctiveness, they would have influences from, from European as well, wouldn't they? That's right. I mean, I didn't explain before, but the explorer, as I called him, guy by the name of Hare, started off in Borneo and then moved to Java. And that's where he got the bulk of his slaves slash harem. He then was looking for land to occupy, if you like, and went to Cape Town in, in um, South Africa, South Africa, yeah. and might have got a few more people there and then headed back to the Cocos Islands. Initial and original population was what we could call Malay, and this in a, in a broader sense, which means native of Southeast Asia. They speak 
a dialect of Malay. I think the formal term for it in linguistics is an isolect. It's a small dialect that only they speak. Some of the differences are, for example, instead of saying orang, which is the mainland Malay, which means person, they'll say orang, orang, which is more like a French orang. So there is some difference in pronunciation. There's also a strong influence, as you suggested, of Scottish customs. So because the Clooney's Ross family were proud of their Scottish heritage, they made a consistent and continuing attempt to sort of instill Scottish customs. So you'll have Malay Muslim people dancing Scottish reels, wearing like batik and other Malay clothes. It's, it's a fascinating sort of hybrid Scottish Malay culture that forms the background of the Cocos Malay identity. With a strong connection to Australia these days and a, a greater mobility, how have the populations of the Cocos Islands moved around over the years? That's a great question because it actually starts before 1984. For about the first century, the Quinnies Ross exerted quite tight control on the population. The basic rule was you're allowed to leave, but you're not allowed to come back. So leaving for some people would mean saying goodbye to everything they know, the culture, the customs, the people. So not many people took up the offer to, to leave even though by some accounts work was quite hard back then. Basically work revolved around harvesting coconuts which had fallen to the ground and getting the white meat, which is called copra, and sending it to Singapore. And in return, uh, goods would come back from Singapore, which helped keep the kingdom, if you like, running. By the end of World War II, the population was basically out of control. From memory, it was over 1,000, maybe as much as 1,400. That's not sustainable for not an island that yeah. size. Oh, yeah. To give you some context, these are quite barren islands. I mean, there's coconuts growing there, but the soil is very infertile. So it's very hard to grow vegetables and keeping even chickens is, is difficult. Over a thousand was not sustainable. So a large population emigrated to northeast Borneo, which is kind of nice historical continuity. They'd come originally from South Borneo, a lot of the slaves, and now over a hundred years later, they were returning to Borneo, but this time to northeast Borneo to work in plantations there. And that place is called Tawau, and there's still a large Cocos Malay population there. Then as Australia became more involved in the affairs of the Cocos Islands, Cocos Malays also migrated to Christmas Island, then to Perth, harbourside town south of Perth called Bunbury to Geraldton and Katanning to work in um, abattoirs there because they were Muslims. They could slaughter cattle in accordance with Islamic halal prescriptions and also up to Port Hedland to work in the mining. And aside from that, there was also Cocos Malays going to Singapore. So basically you get a huge exodus more people leave the Cocos Islands than stay. So with such a diverse amount of locations and simply the distance, how do they maintain their culture and their links to the Cocos Islands? Initially, it was difficult in the post-war period. I haven't been to Tawau yet, but by all accounts, the people in Tawau have held on more strongly to, if you like, traditional Cocos Malay customs than the people on the Cocos Keeling Islands themselves. That's interesting. So, yeah, so that if you go to northeast uh, Malaysia, you'll probably 
more of the kind of dancing I was talking about. The Scottish. Scottish reels and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Though I've heard that the distinct features of a language aren't as strong in Tawal. As an anthropologist, I'd need to go there and, and check it out before I could make any comment. But that's what I've heard anyway. So initially... We know that it was very hard to maintain contact. Now, this is made more difficult by the fact that there was very low literacy rates. Some of them could write a kind of script called Jawi, kind of Arabic script, which is used in Southeast Asia around Sumatra and Java in particular. But a lot of them couldn't. So I've read that in the 1970s, they started sending each other cassettes for younger generation, a cassettes, basically, an audio recording Ye old podcast. <laughs> Ye old podcast, yeah. <laughs> there was also, as far as I understand, a bit of travel between the various locations of migration. And certainly after Australia took control of the Cocos Killing Islands and the Cocos Islanders voted to become part of Australia, there was a kind of return migration, particularly those people who had migrated to Singapore or Malaysia were now interested in migrating back. But still, communications are relatively difficult to maintain. But what's interesting now, new technologies are really enabling or fostering a sense of cocus connection, and particularly that's through Facebook. I've been lucky enough to be befriended by many cocus islanders on Facebook, and we see connections between people in Katanning, in Tawau, on Christmas Island and in the Cocos Islands, one popular post is posting pictures of fish that are caught because fish is a huge part of the livelihood there. So over the years then, I suppose this would open up the opportunity for a lot to be sent back and forth between the Cocos Islands and those that have emigrated off the island to, to Perth. Mm. And you said before that there's a lot working in abattoirs preparing halal meat. Is that yeah, this is, this is a very interesting back. thing that uh, my wife, Monica, who's also doing anthropological research with me, my wife, Monica, and I are working on this, which is um, what you could call an esky economy. Now, for non-Australians, an esky is like a uh, styrofoam box. An icebox. Icebox, yeah. So what we noticed while we were doing field work, well, immediately when you get off the plane on Quakers Islands, you see a whole lot of eskies or styrofoam boxes being taken to the customs. And then as the plane takes off, a lot of them going back. And when you get to Home Island, you notice that almost every house has these one or maybe sometimes two box freezers. So by that, I mean larger than an office desk full of seafood. So Cocos Islanders fish for seafood for themselves, but they also send this frozen seafood in eskies back to the diaspora, if you like, the locations of migration to other Cocos Malays, for example, in Katanning. So we were lucky enough to be asked to take an esky for our sort of host parents, if you like, Net Sophia. Net Sophia asked us to take a esky from the Cocos Islands to Perth. And when we got there to Perth Airport at midnight, the daughter and son-in-law came and picked up the eskies. We went to visit them a few days later in southeast Perth, and we noticed they had the huge Cocos Island box freezer. And while we were there, somebody else came from Katanning bringing satay sticks that had been made in Katanning with the meat that had been slaughtered and prepared in halal manner in Katanning. So this person picked up some seafood that had been sent from Cocos Islands from their box freezer in southeast Perth to take back to Katanning, but also dropped off some of these satay sticks to be taken back to Cocos Islands. Anthropologists see gifts as 
we don't believe in the true gift. We think that all gifts have something attached to them, and that's an obligation to maintain a relationship. If I'm working and I give a person in the office next door a Christmas present, next year I expect them to give me a present back, but also that our relationship could be a little bit closer. So anthropologists are fascinated by the way gifts bring people together. Now, the idea here then, what we're working on with this esky economy, is the way that satay coming from Katanning and seafood coming from, well, Northeast Indian Ocean, work to bring these sort of migrant communities together. Also, in addition to that, you get like a Facebook post. So somebody goes fishing on Sunday and puts up a post of this big ikan ijo, green fish they caught. And then somebody in Port Hedland might say, yum, that looks great. Send me some, please. And then in the comments in the Facebook post, I will say, yeah, sure, it's coming on the next plane or something like that. These technologies... We've advanced a long way from just the cassettes or maybe writing letters in Jawi script. Modern technologies facilitating the connections between members of very dispersed communities. Yeah, it's, it's a great example of the world becoming smaller thanks to technology. Yeah. It must make it a bit of a nightmare for the people working in customs every time a, a Cocos Island-related plane comes into land because you know that you're going to be stuck there in customs for a while checking all these fish. Well, no, they know what's coming, they so what's they're, coming. they're pretty good. In my recollection, they're, they're very reasonable at both ends. They know what's coming, uh, the Cocos Island ends and the Firth ends. They understand what's in, in the eskies and they have a quick look, of course, to check. They don't hold things up to their credit. They're very reasonable about it. So besides sending food back and forth through this manner, what other ways are they using these channels of communication to maintain their identity? Well, anthropologists look at what draws people together into relationships. And of course, as I mentioned before, gift giving is a great way to create relationships between people. But the best way, of course, to build alliance is through marriage. What we're finding is that there's a lot of marriage migration now, particularly back to the Cocos Keeling Islands, back to the Cocos Malay community on Home Island. This is partly because, you know, the economy in Malaysia now doesn't look so good. So there's a kind of, if you like, push factor. There's also a pull factor that, you know, Cocos Malay boasts by the standards of a lot of people a very good lifestyle. The other thing is that on the Cocos Islands itself, there are very few matches available. Marriage is a huge deal. The only way to achieve status is to get married and have babies. If you do that, if you're a man, you're a pup, which means a father or dad or mister or sir. If you're a woman, you're called mutt. My eldest is a girl called Kiki, so I'm Pak Kiki, and my wife's called Mutt Kiki. If we didn't have children, we would never be called Pak or Mutt. We would just be uncle or auntie. So the only way to really achieve status is to have children. The only way to have children is to get married. But it's very difficult for Cocos Malays on Home Island to get married. So they look out to the diaspora. So if I'm a 35-year-old guy and haven't been married yet, I start asking around and it turns out my uncle has a friend in Katanning who knows of a woman there who's, you know, age 25. She's single and looking for a match too. And that might be the start of something there. So you get not just seafood and satay sticks traveling around creating alliances, but also marriage creating alliances. And that's facilitated, again, through the technology, through Facebook meeting potential spouses. And once the marriage is on, then that's a huge deal. I mean, weddings there are enormous. They last for a week. 
super abundance of food and dancing and merrymaking, costumes. Even Cocos Malays themselves complain it's too exorbitant. <laughs> it's utterly over the top. A huge deal. And uh, marriage and having kids is a huge deal. And the technologies are helping to enable that in the same way that they're kind of enabling this sort of satay and seafood buildings of connections. All right. Thanks for your time, Nick. Thanks very much, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia. You can follow Nick. He's on Twitter. He's at nherryman. And you can follow me. I'm at nightlightguy. If you like this program, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.